Hello, my podcast people. Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. Uh, I think you'll be able to hear how much I enjoyed it as well as you listen uh, to this episode. This week, we have a conversation with Chad McLaren. Chad is a writer, director, producer, and cinematographer known for the film's Daddy's Little Girl, Bear With Me, and Still Sophie. He was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee, and started his professional career as a still photographer when he was only 14. Chad founded Best Part Productions in 2010 with his brother Trey to pursue their lifelong dream of making movies together. His short, Daddy's Little Girl, is available on iTunes, Amazon, Verizon Fios, and Google Play, so make sure you go watch that. His short, Embrace is in the film festival circuit right now. It plays at the Rome International Film Festival this weekend. Chad is currently in Virginia. He's shooting a slasher movie as a DP, and he's currently in the fundraising stage of putting together his first feature film, and it is going to be a psychological horror, so can't wait to hear and see more about that. So, without further ado... I give you writer, director, producer, coffee lover, bourbon drinker, all around good guy, Chad McLaren. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice knowledge and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Chad McLarnon. I am a filmmaker in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I have uh, made several short films um, from with my production company, Best Part Productions, here in uh, here in Nashville. We co-own that, my, me and my brother. Um, I write, direct, shoot, edit, um, do sort of all of the all of the different things, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's a worse intro than I did before. <laughs> Um, should have recorded the first one, but, um, yeah, we, we, we do, uh, we do a bunch of stuff. The stuff that we're working on right now is sort of fulfilling, um, work for clients for the production company. And we're trying to put together our first feature. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, um, did you said you also did a documentary? I produced and shot a documentary, um, with a student director. She's a student at the time. She's, she's now gone on to, um, bigger and greater things and lives in New York. Her name's Caroline Knight. Um, and that project was called still Sophie. That was the latest, like go, go around the festival circuit sort of thing that we've done. Um, and we just finished a new, a new short film called Embrus that we've, um, did, did essentially for the Nashville film festival. They did this thing called the actor's challenge that we, um, they brought us on to make a, make a short for that. And 
unclear whether or not it's going to have any life on the rest of the festival circuit right now. We've submitted to a few places to sort of see how it picks up, but that's not really primarily the focus right now. No, I understand, man. And thank you so much for joining me and uh, having this conversation. Uh, it's actually kind of been a long time coming, at least since April. So, yeah. so thank you so much for um, coming along and being a part of this uh, little adventure. Taking, taking the time out of my incredibly busy schedule oh, of so, all the important yeah. things that I spend all my time doing. <laughs> I know. I know. This is, <laughs> I'm going to owe you forever. Oh, sure, sure. I'm never going to live this down. Um, tell me, how did you uh, get started in, in filmmaking? Uh, what was that sort of first moment for you, and, and how did you get going? And then also, how did you hook up with the – did you say her name was Carolyn? Caroline. Yeah, Caroline. How did you get hooked up with her as a, as a film student? Well, so let's see. I mean, it depends on how far back you want to go. The, I, all, I started, the, all the way back. All the, all the way. Great. Um, so I, I started in uh, still photography. Um, I, I, my, so my dad gave me a camera when I was 11 years old, um, and I thought it was really cool. What kind and, of camera was it? It was a Minolta X700 wow. with a 50 millimeter 1.2 lens on it. It was the camera that he bought when I was born to take pictures of, of me and my brother Trey. And then when I was 11, I had, I had had like a point and shoot that I would go around and take pictures of all my friends with. Um, and he decided to give me that camera. And then for the next three years of my life, I shot basically everything that I could shoot and ended up getting a um, a kind of catalog of work, if you could call it that at that age. Um, Was this here in Nashville? Uh, so I grew up in Gallatin. So, Gallatin, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a Tennessee native, um, grew up on a cow farm in Gallatin, Tennessee. Gallatin, Tennessee. Yeah. Um, and For so those that aren't from Tennessee listening to this Gallatin is, um, essentially, uh, bumfuck Egypt. <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know it's it's grown significantly from when i was there um the the it farm has. that we grew up on is now a uh is now a miracle ford dealership um <laughs> it, it, they tore all of our houses down and and but it was a great place to it was a great place to grow up but like that's it's sort of the that area is sort of the start of town now where before it was you know, a half hour to even get to town. I mean, it felt like I was a kid. You, yeah. you don't know how you travel in a car. It's forever, wherever you go. There, uh, there were woods by my house when I was a kid. Um, and we would play uh, army and war in those woods. Me and my best, one of my best friends at the time, his name was Robbie Sweeney. Robbie Sweeney's a great name. Yeah, Robbie Sweeney. And uh, we would skip school back there. And it was just the, it was great. We built bunkers and uh, we would go to the mall that was just adjacent to it and, and go you know, get chips and drinks and then come back to the bunker and talk and hang out and all the stuff like, you know, preteen boys will do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and now those woods are uh, a Sonic and a Fazoli. <laughs> Right, Fazoli's and, and Sonic, kids, and kids are, are are there now hanging out at Sonic, no doubt, doing the same things that you were doing in the woods. They're just at the tables at Sonic and not paying for their food. Yeah, exactly. And that Sonic, um, when they built it, 
that was one of my very, um, it's probably one of my top, uh, five or 10 jobs as a teenager. Cause I just was rolling through jobs when I was a teenager. Uh, I'd be in and out. Um, no awesome with burger joints intended, but yeah, yeah. But yeah. I went to Sonic and worked and, uh, I was fired within one shift. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and as a consolation prize, Chad, they, they gave me my apron and my polo and said, so you can, you can keep, you can keep this polo and this apron and also your name tag. And it's funny that I, I had so much shame around it that I actually did keep those things in my top drawer for many, many years. <laughs> as, as if one day I was going to get called up to the big leagues by like the right. Sonic manager. Like, oh yeah. And you'll be like, well, this one time I worked one day and yeah. they were going to call, Hey Chris, we need you. Can, can you, you still got that uniform? Right. Uh, yeah. Never happened. Yeah, no, my I, I did a fairly similar thing. My first job. Um, what was, was your first job? McAllister's Deli. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, elder, elderly stronghold. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I guess I guess it is. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't been to one in a really long time. Um, my theory is that it's the only place where you can get multiple varieties of soup. Oh yeah, on a on a on a regular basis for sure. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'll you know, I I work there. Their chicken tortilla soup is <laughs> worth every penny. It's really good. Uh, yeah, I I would I would um, urge everyone to reconsider getting uh, anything that has tortilla chips or uh, chili and cheese. Because at the McAllister's that we worked at, the the chili and cheese and the chips were right next to each other. It's like the <laughs> the heater, right? Yeah. And so every single person that worked there, it didn't matter if you were leaving from the kitchen to go into the front room. You stopped and grabbed a chip and dipped it in the cheese and ate it. <laughs> and that just happened all day long, all day. I mean, so oh, uh, you know, obviously eating everybody's you know, dip chips. <laughs> I just don't think the customers were aware. Clearly not. Uh, that is certainly a form of food service terrorism. And, uh, if someone, <laughs> yeah. if, so, if someone at McAllister's, McAllister's is listening, all you have to do is separate the cheese, the chips and the chili and everything. Yeah. Right. If you, if you get, if you get the chips in a different area, it yeah. won't happen. Um, but I, I mean, I also, and I, you know, I only worked at one of the stores, the store in Gallatin that's no longer there. Um, but my, my guess is, is that it, it's a pretty universal thing. <laughs> I would think. <laughs> yeah. And you, so you were fired from McAllister's, uh, yeah, was, no, it, I was it for taking fire. pictures it's, of everyone's food or no, like, it's, well, you were either it's actually pre Instagram. Good, right. No, it's actually a good, uh, a good segue pro podcaster, um, I, I left the job at McAllister's Deli to start working as a photographer for the News Examiner newspaper. Wow. And it was the Sumner County paper. I started working there sometime between like, like I couldn't quite drive yet. I don't, I don't remember quite what year it was, 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. Um, but my grandmother also worked at the paper and, um, she would typically take me in or, you know, once it, it, it back back in my day, you you could get a learner's permit at fifteen. I don't think you can do that anymore. But gotcha. uh, with my learner's permit, I could I could drive, and I started doing um, sort of correspondent type uh, photojournalism things. So, um, and I, I would go and shoot some public interest 
story, some event or some, I like covered peewee football, (laughs) you know, (laughs) shot a lot of sports and stuff for, for them. And then I did that all through the rest of high school. Um, through and that then experience, with, did you become a lot better at taking motion and action shots? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and you know, it's, it's sort of, I, I think there's a lot of storytelling things that I learned at that point because, you know, I would go and shoot a, a sports event, whatever it was, baseball or, or football. And I very quickly, um, after being there about a year, I started covering all the high school games. There were basically two, two or three of us at the paper, and then every Friday night, you know, Friday night lights is a real thing. Um, all the paper covered all of Sumner County, so we had to go to either Portland, Westmoreland, Gallatin, you know, all these towns that nobody cares about in Sumner County, Tennessee, and um, would sometimes have to go two games a night, and so you were the only person there from the paper. So you had to get all the photos and to be able to run the story and get quotes from the coach mm-hmm. and then come back and I'd, I'd have to submit my photos and, and write up a story of the game. Um, and so you have to take this, you know, I mean, a, a game has a regular dramatic structure, but you have to do something that's compelling or the editor is not going to print your photos. Um, and so, doing that at a young age when I didn't know anything, um, and only barely knew how to use the camera. Um, it, it very much felt like I was tricking everybody, which, which I think started a, a, a long lineage to where I am. Where I still feel like I'm tricking everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm so fascinated by this idea of you being 14 and having the wherewithal 14, 15 years old, having the wherewithal to go get that job in the first place. How, how did you, how did you even conceptualize, Hey, I'm going to take this picture. I'm going to get my pictures in the newspaper and I'm going to bring value is I'm going to take uh, pictures of things they already care about, like, you know, football. Right. So the, there's actually a very specific instance that um, gave me that opportunity. Um, so I was in chorus in high school. And, and at that time, the, the thing that I was pursuing for my life was music. Um, I didn't really play any instruments, but I, I sang all the time. I sang out places. I, I, my dad's a musician. I sang with my dad all the time. And I had been in chorus for um, you know, at least two semesters. Um, and this, uh, this kid who was an upperclassman that I had known for a while, his name is Don Wright, Mm -hmm. still, still a photographer here in Nashville. Um, he had the job that I got. Um, he was a senior and he came, he came in to take, like we had to do to, to, you know, advertise for, for one of the performances that the chorus was doing, we were doing a photo shoot for the paper. They were going to come and take a group picture of everybody, take some photos of our rehearsal and then run that in the paper as sort of event ad lead up, right. Mm-hmm. To sell tickets for the show. And so we had all gotten gussied up for the big newspaper photographer to come in and take our picture. And then he gets there and it's just this guy, Don Wright, that I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, 
dude, you just, you're like two classes over. I know you. Um, and he's like, I said, you do these for the paper? He was like, yeah, I've been shooting for the paper for a few years. They have this little stringer job that, you know, you go and do these things. And I was like, how, how, how do you, what is that? How do you do that? What is, how do you become a part of that? Right. I want to do that. Um, you know, and then I also like, I, I really looked up to my grandmother. She did, she sold advertising for the paper and my aunt, my father's sister, um, my aunt Margaret also worked in the, uh, sort of page layout and design section. So I have family that worked at the paper. Um, and then I find out that Don Wright has this, has this gig. And I said, how do I get that? And he said, well, I'm, I mean, I graduate in May, you know, uh. Um, and I was like, well, I know BD Steven Rogers, who's the editor for the paper, like my family works there. Like I could just go over there. And so that literally that afternoon I got out of school and I just went over to the paper and went up to Steven Rogers office. And I said, Hey, um, Don Wright is going to be like done. Or are you still going to need somebody to do that stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, yeah, yeah, we, we will. And then asked me some questions and have I shot anything? And then, I had all this stuff that this film that I had shot from the camera that dad gave me. And so he asked me to put together some of those and I put together my first portfolio and took it up there and he gave me a job. And it feels, it feels like I did that because, you know, because the stuff was good, but it's almost certainly that like nepotism, my family worked there, like still like my, my other grandmother, um, babysat Steven Rogers kids. <laughs> so like, like it's all, it's all like in playing, you know, he shouldn't have given that job to a 14 year old kid, but he did. And, right. and I got paid, you know, so much is basically kind of a per, per hour, per assignment sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's typical of freelance journalism. And, and, but the, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is, is this is, and this is a very, very micro example. And that's kind of what makes it so endearing and, and kind of sweet in, in my mind. But, but there's lessons to be learned from it because if it were like a bigger example, like, uh, a, like a bigger paper. Uh, oh, yeah. Sure. And, and th- like people would say, oh, he, he basically, had an overnight success because his family worked there right. without really getting to see what you just shared with us here, which is no, you got a camera at 11. You, yeah. A lot of kids get things. Yeah, <laughs> a, sure. a lot of kids right. get things. Uh, you know, if, if I get my kid a skateboard, that doesn't mean he's going to ride it. Yeah. Um, you know, so you started taking pictures, you developed a portfolio, you shot everything and anything you got good, uh, at your craft. And then when the opportunity came, you were able to seize it because you had right. spent the last several years developing your craft. So, so it's not an overnight success story. It's just the opportunity happens really quickly when you're ready for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, I also, it's, it's big, big, massive thanks to my father who didn't tell me how to use the camera. Mm-hmm. So, he said, here's this, it takes, it takes pictures. You can be more nuanced with it than the one you have. 
Um, yeah. and I, he handed it to me and I took it out and I took a roll of film in the same way that I'd done with my point and shoot. And I got the film back and everything was black. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I came to him and I was like, what did I do wrong? And he just handed me the manual. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, he just, he, he said, here's the, here, here's the manual. It's right there in the case. Why didn't you read it? Um, and I mean, I'm still to this day when, when I'm shooting, cause I still do still photography, um, commercially when I'm shooting or even when I'm shooting, uh, for, for film, I'm accessing information that I, that I read at, at 11, 12, 13 years old in the Minolta X 700 owner's manual. Yeah. It's, it's the most comprehensive, um, like basic photography course book that I've ever, ever come across since. And I've read many of them since it like, it, it's not just, this is shutter speed. This is aperture. It's, it's, this is what they do. This is how they work together. This is the effect that the settings have on the photograph from an artistic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very, very great book. And if I think that if he would have just given me the camera and said, this is the things, these are the things that you do. Um, I wouldn't have come to a successful result myself and been able to own it as a thing that I did. I love that. Yeah, I think that's so true because um, you would have taken pictures that weren't inspiring to you maybe um, and then possibly quit, which would have hurt, you know, the larger world because we wouldn't be able to see your art, but because you were able to develop and learn it as a craft, everything was very personal to you as you shot it. Exactly. And so that's huge. So fast forward, you're, you're working at the paper. Now you're about to make, um, you're going into film, you want to do film. So did you start, did you go to film school? Did you meet people? Like, I know that we were talking about the documentary you did with a film student. Yeah. So no, I went to, I went to, um, Western Kentucky university for photojournalism. Um, that, that became my pursuit. The goal was to work for, the the goal was to get an assignment from national geographic. That was my goal as a never, never met. I gave it up very quickly this is, this is like, so I graduated 2002. So this is early two thousands. Um, which was, if, if everyone remembers the beginning of the end for print journalism, basically. Mm-hmm. Where they uh, say it sort of released journalism 2.0 around that time and journalists yeah. were starting to flock to blogs. And, 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 and I can tell you as someone who was in a major photojournalism school at the time, everyone was scrambling and didn't know what was going to happen. Um, the major that I was in was photojournalism with emphasis on new media and the new media meant what they were teaching us. It sounds so stupid now. What they were teaching us was to do these, um, sort of like Ken Burns style motion, uh, photo essays Yep. where it was, I had, I, I had like a Sony mini disc recorder and I would go out in the field and do these like NPR style interviews with people and then take all these pictures and then build and flash standalone websites that were specifically that story. And so like I learned flash, I learned action scripting, I learned all of this stuff that by 2008 was dead. Mm. Like every, every bit of technology that I learned in college 
was completely obsolete by 2008 and was already out the door by when I would have graduated. I didn't graduate when I would have graduated by 2000, you know, six or seven, it was already like not what was happening. And I mean, the idea that like I, there's people that spent four plus years of their lives learning the new media wave of the future, all of this just useless tech crap, mm-hmm. like accent scripting is not translatable for anything anymore. <laughs> right. Right. And I can relate to that personally because, you know, my major is journalism and um, different concentration, but, but I, I certainly remember that quite a bit wrote for the school newspaper as well. And, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a trying time. So, so you, you left college. How many years did you do it? I did. So I did, I did, I did three years, um, which seems like I was close to graduating, but I wasn't cause I'm a terrible student. Um, and, and I never, because I had been at the paper for, you know, four years, basically, prior to going to photojournalism school classes like basic photography, I was, I was not, I was an insufferable student. I'm sure an insufferable Mm -hmm. classmate. Um, you you know, you're young and you know everything. And, um, I'm, I'm sure I was really an asshole to a lot of people at that time, but, um, I didn't want to take the class. Like I would go to see my advisor every semester to put my classes and I didn't want to do the classes that she said that I had to do for my major. And so I would just agree to whatever it was that she said, but then I could go back to my dorm room and apply for whatever classes I wanted. Like (laughs) there's not, there's not a, there's, you realize very quickly that there's not a second check. So, Mm -hmm. and the school was so big, she didn't remember me from the year before. She would just get my stuff and look at it and say, you need to take these classes. And I'd go, okay, great. She said, let's take this, this. And I was just like, yeah, just do the schedule. And I'd take whatever she said and then go and sign up for whatever I wanted. So like, I could have stayed for another year and gotten like four minors right? philosophy and psychology and all these classes that I really enjoyed taking. I would just take those like the philosophy of love and friendship. Like how great is that class? <laughs> it's way, it's way better than like intermediate photography three. Yeah. I would love to read the syllabus for that class, by the way. Oh, it was, it was a dream. And you read like, you know, all the philosophy stuff. You get to read Plato and, and, and Aristotle and like all that stuff appealed to me much more, but that's actually what was the very initial start to it's, it's the, I'll I'll give you an exclusive. It's the secret start to mine and Trey's filmmaking career. It's not the one that we say is where it started. (laughs) Right. Um, and and Trey, Trey's your brother, just to be Trey's clear. my brother. Yeah. We own the production company together and we've co-wrote every, every one of the f- projects that we've made so far. Um, and in, when I was in college, he was, uh, he was going to another school in Jackson, Tennessee, and, um, he had been getting into doing playwriting stuff and we wrote a feature film together that we've never made. Um, we found the script a few weeks ago and it's awful. Um, (laughs) but I took, I took as one of these, like just on a, on a lark, that sounds really fun. Yeah. Uh, The, the broadcast journalism department had a class called film animation 101. Um, and that sounded really fun. I've always liked animation. And so I took it, it was with a professor named Steve white. 
Um, and I loved it so much. I made these stupid like flipbook animation and I made a claymation, these little shorts for the, for the class. Um, and then afterwards I didn't want it to stop. And my brother and I had already made this written this feature. And so I, I said, can I went to Steve, he, he was the head of the entire broadcast department. I said, what other classes are there where you can teach me how to, how to make this film? And I gave him my script. Yeah. I said, I don't know how to make it. Uh, I've, I've written it. And it turns out I don't even know, I didn't even know how to write it. I mean, we didn't even know the script, screenplay format. It was just long form written. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, well, there's not really any other film classes cause this is a journalism school, but he, he explained to me this process of independent study where you can sort of make your own class. And he said that he would sponsor an independent study class where um, we wouldn't be able to make a feature film. But he said, you can do some more animation because you seem to be interested in that and we'll make a short film, but you'll have to write something new. Um, and so Trey and I wrote this film that's called The Best Part of Waking Up, mm-hmm. um, which is the reason that the production company is called Best Part Productions. Uh, um, got it. The, the film is awful. It's a, it's a, it's like 28 minute short about <laughs> this assassin named Johnny Crystal. It's terrible. I shot it on like a Panasonic SVHS camera from the school, but I worked all semester on it. Right. Um, of course. And knew, knew nothing like the very first rough cut of the very first scene that I brought to this professor to show him say, yeah, this, so this is the progress I've made so far in film animation. When you, when you edit, I mean, it's all just these, obviously it's this like stop motion sort of still images. Right. Mm-hmm. And the way that they taught us to do it was you would take one of the still images, drop it in the timeline for two frames, have, have it be, have it be two frames long. And then you put all of your images in sequence, two frames long. And then you would put a one second dissolve transition between them all, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it's that dissolve that gives you an illusion of movement. I mean, I think there's better ways to do it now. There's probably better ways to do it then, but that's what they taught. And so that way it wasn't so like sort of staccato through the through the image. Right. And when I started when he started explaining to me how to uh, cut the film together, I I went and I did what he said. But I thought that you just put a dissolve between every cut always. <laughs> I thought that for a cut to be an, like an actual cut, it required a, two, a one second dissolve between all of them. And so the very first scene that I ever shot, directed, wrote, and cut, I gave to this guy. And uh, he, like, what a wonderful saint of a man he was. <laughs> like, <laughs> didn't call me an idiot. He watched it. He gave me notes, and his very last note was, and you might want to um, go through and just delete all those res- all those dissolves. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, what do you what do you, what are you talking? He's like, the the transitions you don't you don't need them. I was like, well, what do you what transition do you put there? He says, you, well, you don't. And, and ding 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 ding. Like yeah, light, right. It's light, like, light goes off. And it's so stupid because how many movies have I seen? They don't dissolve between them. You know, it's, it's so how you get so sort of myopic yeah. at the thing that you've been told to do and, you, and you're, you're fighting to do it the proper way based on what you know. 
and you know, it, it turns out there's not a proper way. <laughs> like, yeah, does it, does it emote and, and does it tell way. the story? And there's and, certainly improper ways, but there's not a proper way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so that was, that was the first thing. And then basically I leave school to do commercial work because the last semester of, I, I, I did a lot of photo assisting. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's a photographer here in town. That's probably my greatest mentor is Bob Schatz, yeah. uh, who, uh, brought me on. So I, I'm, I'm at the paper and I'm also assisting Bob and then I go to school and I'm continuing to assist Bob, but I can't do it as often. And I've been doing it so long for him that he's starting to give me the clients he doesn't want anymore. So he gets a call for a job that doesn't pay quite enough or he doesn't have time to do it. And he's trying to put it off on me, but I'm an hour north in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Right. So my final semester of school, I decide to calculate the, um, the value of work that I'd been turning down. And compared to my tuition, and I had turned down in that last semester twice as much worth of work as I had paid to go to school. Wow! In 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 a in an industry separate from what I was going to school for, like I wasn't getting hired for journalistic stuff; I was getting hired for commercial work. And so I just I was like, "Well, I hate school. This is stupid. I'm already making the money, so I'm just going to go and do that." Then of course I leave school and open the world open, and then I you know work falls off for <laughs> you know it, it, it's it's never what you think it's going to be, but that that's that's why I left school was to was to pursue the commercial work full time. Gotcha. And so when you got into the commercial work, um, which I, I know you're probably still doing some of that through your production company as well. Oh yeah. Uh, how did you get involved? Um, like what, what what was do you think you know your your biggest challenge uh, as a filmmaker trying to and how did you overcome sort of that transition from I just left school early um, here I am making commercials now I want to make films um so the the that is all sort of let me see so the first thing would be um. Sounds very strange, but I did a uh, online beard growing contest, <laughs> um, which funny funny enough, um, have have you had Maki Dap on the podcast yet? I I have had Maki on here, and uh, he is he's yeah. fantastic as you might expect. Yes, so so my Maki Dap and I grew beards together online. I can totally see that you're both um, a, a well bearded gentleman. Yeah. So, um, there was this website in the, um, in, in the aughts, as I like to call it. Um, it, it, it ended about, I think, I think 2011, but they did it for the entirety of the early two thousands. Um, where every other year they, uh, this website opened and it was sort of like, like social media. I mean, it would be very familiar now. It was foreign at the time, where um, this guy named Michael Eads started this website called Whiskerino.org. <laughs> and the, oh, the, you, you went on there, you, you made an account, you made a, you made a name, um, a sort of screen name. And um, on November 1st, you would shave your face clean 
Mm-hmm. And then you were not intended to shave until the end of February. So it was a four-month um, beard-growing contest, sort of. That's how it started. And then you were supposed to just post photos to the website every day um, showing your beard growth. That's how it began. It very quickly, because there's a lot of artists involved in it, it very quickly became this like super intense uh, high concept self-portrait competition um, where people were doing these increasingly elaborate self-portraits um, of themselves showcasing their beards. Um, and then soon after Whiskerino started, they started doing a yearly thing called Mustache May, which only lasted a month and you ha- would have a mustache for the month of May and do the same thing, mustachemay.com. Anyway, at the highest levels, Chad, do you think there was performance enhancing <laughs> used to to ensure uh, like that you know, had the top beard or top mustache? Like like or people were people using Rogaine or no? But I, I I do know a couple of guys that swore that uh, fish oil made their um, beards more magnificent. But hmm. uh, I, I do know some guys that were that were juicing with fish oil, but I don't oh. know. Oh. So it's not just girth; it's also sheen. Yeah, sure. Well, but what's funny is that it very. I wasn't there for the start. I did Whiskerino in two thousand nine, and then did Mustache May multiple years. Um, by the time I really got into it, it was full on photo contest. So it was. I mean, give give and, give and, the and, 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 and now that leans towards your skill set, right? Because now you're yeah, somebody yeah. who can take a Absolutely. hell of a of a self portrait. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's all these rules, like you can't use Photoshop, you can't use this, you know, and so everybody's trying to figure out how to do like practical effects for things. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of multiple exposure stuff that people, you know, and what's, what's insane is it became this very intensely, um, intimate creative community that after which everyone was super hungry to continue to collaborate together. Um, and through that, I met Maki, I met Bobby Marco, I met um, Andy Wells, who's an incredible composer. Um, many of my collaborators that I use to this day are born out of that. And my first sort of re-entry into film was... Um, a 48 hour film festival that Motke did in 2009. Mm -hmm. Um, he brought me on as the, uh, lighting director, which is a very weird title to uh, bring somebody on for. But, (laughs) um, at the time nobody knew anything. And, um, but I'm, you know, at, by then I had sort of figured out how to set lights up. And so he basically brought me on for, a, a to do the, essentially the lighting side of the DP's work. So um, the DP that he had is the same guy that he uses to this day. He's an incredible shooter named Micah Sims. At the time, he was just a kid. Um, and Micah he's, had his... He's still a kid. Yeah, right. Um, he was super a kid then. <laughs> <laughs> but so My, Micah came on and and did his... Um, you know, he had... Maki wanted to bring somebody on to help him with light. And so I came on and did that for Maki's 48, um, and ended up 
staying on throughout the entire process. And I went and delivered the footage to Bobby Marco who cut it that night. And I sat behind Bobby and watched him cut this film in overnight, six hours. Right. Um, and I left that going, well, well hell I can, I can do this. <laughs> right? Like it's, You're right. That's, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's how it all starts. Like I, I, I was like, I can still do this. And that, you know, I mean, Micah did an incredible job, but like, it's again, it's that thing of, I, I, you, you don't, there's that like, um, um, like intellectual sort of paradox where the information that you need to know that you don't know is the same information that you need to know. Right. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you, you have to, you don't know that you're not an expert until you have the same information you need to be an expert. That's a better way to say it. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't know what I didn't know. And Micah was there shooting this film with the same camera I own. Yeah. Right. And it was this sort of click of like, oh, we could do this again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that then, that's where that thought was implanted. And then that sort of comes to a head when, um, I was doing this series of, um, like art openings at coffee shops. I had a sort of, a, a series like this, you know, kind of artistic landscapey fine art photography. Right. The kind, I, the kind you would kind of see in a coffee shop for sale up on the walls. Exactly. So I was doing the kind of coffee shop as gallery tour, And, um, I had it planned out for about a year and a half where I was doing a show every month, um, all around Nashville and surrounding cities. And it was about the fifth month of those. And I would do an art opening every day. I mean, ever at the, at the opening of it, I'd bring all my friends and I realized it like the fifth one that it was all the same people coming to the art opening Mm -hmm. and nobody was really looking at the work, right? like they'd seen it. And so obviously I have this group of people that are coming out and supporting the art that I'm doing, supporting. But, but there's so, there's so much inside. You, you need that sort of new group, right? Well, no, it's what was, what, what clicked was that Trey and I were standing, we were in Bongo Java on Belmont. Um, and my, you know, I have $5,000 worth of prints on the wall. Right. <laughs> right. One of my favorite spots, by the way, I yeah. spent a lot of my time in college there. Absolutely. Um, and so we're standing there and I'm looking around the room and, you know, we have, um, incredible musician and gloriously wonderful friend Ray Herring is in the corner playing beautiful music for the opening. She played every one of my art openings. Mm-hmm. Um, then I started looking around the room and it's like, well, so there's a composer and there's an audio guy and here's somebody that does wardrobe and here's Ah. somebody that does like we start sort of reminiscing about that short in college looking at the art lamenting how nobody's looking at it having just come off of this 48 where i was in a theater where we put this movie up that was fun but not necessarily a great movie but they all looked at it for eight minutes Mm. and it it was like we could just take this take just the people in this room and make a thing that at the very least can get into a place where some group of people 
have to watch it from beginning to end. Um, and we started best part productions that next day and shot what we typically tell people is our first short film, a new life three months later. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And I, I can really relate to that. There was a moment, there was one of those inflection points and I used to have a singing group named Solace and we were like a four yeah. part harmony singing group. Amazing. Was, you know, very popular at the time. And, um, and, and I remember my co-founder of the group, um, his name was Jay uh, Lane. And he said, Chris, you know, we ought to all just start playing instruments. We ought to be, we ought to transition from a singing group to a band. Sure. And, and at the time, like I was playing, I was the only one that played an instrument. I wrote all the songs. I did all the compositions. I carried all the weight. I did all the production. Right. And I'm sure a part of it was my ego getting in the way. But another part of it was, is I was at the time, I, I had not learned the value of being a long game thinker. Um, right. I was, um, you know, to compare it to stocks, I was, I was, uh, I was a growth, I was a growth investor, right? So I'm not a value investor. So I, I, my short-term thinking was like, no, you know how long it takes to be exceptional on an instrument? Like every, yeah, right. this is going to like, like this guy's going to go play the drums. You're going to play the guitar. I'm going to stay with the piano. We're all going to be great together. No, right. it'll be four years before we put out another song. And, and so I just was really against it. Um, but I look back at that moment sometimes and think the answer was probably yes, because I yeah. would have gotten the morale from everyone because everyone was for it, but me, uh, I would have had the morale of the group. Uh, we would have all had, we would have all left win or lose. We would have all left with a, a deeper sense of craft and, um, and four years is no time in a lifetime of art. And oh, so yeah. now I don't regret it because, um, I'm not sure I wanted to spend that much time with all those guys uh, at the, t you know, um, it, it, just knowing who they are, you know, and, and how yeah. they are. Um, but, but looking at just trying to, you know, focus in on that decision alone. If I had that to do again in a different context, I would certainly say, let's go craft all the way. Let's, let's long-term think it and try to make something great. Um, Cause one great thing is far better than a hundred, you know, mediocre songs. Right. So that, which is kind of where we were at. Um, so, so you made the short film, you're starting to trade in attention a little bit. You're starting to understand that, that the real game is attention. Um, and, and you, and you fell in love with that. You had the people to, to make the production company. Um, so what was going back to that original question? What was that? Your, your first, you know, biggest challenge that, that you faced and, and that you overcame? Um, I mean, I don't know. That's such a hard question to answer because, I mean, I, I, th I think that certainly the most honest answer is that the biggest challenge hasn't happened yet. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like <laughs> the amount of times that I've sort of met the biggest challenge, um, it is, is innumerable and, and you don't, I mean, every, every, like every time that that happens and then you get past it, it makes you recontextualize whatever you thought it was before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, you know, I think that like, like, like many people experience working with actors took me a while to really get the hang of. I think that I very early on, especially on that first short, 
um, did quite a disservice to the people that, that trusted me enough to come into that space. Um, right. I, I, I came out of this, I was coming out of this technical whirlwind, right? Like I, I know from a, from a technical mechanical standpoint, just about everything there is to know about the camera and how it records an image. Um, I'd been, that's, that's the thing that I've done my whole life. That's breathing to me. Mm-hmm. The working, working with on-screen talent was a muscle that I had to work really hard to get. Um, uh, yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people experience that it's a very foreign, a very foreign process and requires a, a significant amount of trust that is, is hard to give if you're not used to giving it. And and I look at you like going from that point where you're making a couple of bad films, but you're falling in love to the po- to, to present day where you've made a short that has won awards and and you're just highly respected here in, in the Nashville community and in and, and this southeast region in general as a filmmaker. Um, were, were the, was there any uh, piece of advice along the way that that helped you maturate between there that that kept you motivated? And then if so, who did they come from? Um, you know, the, so, um, I mean, there's some specific pieces of advice that were always, they're always great. I mean, I, I think that one of the, one of the very early things that was, um, instilled in me and I can't quite pinpoint who it was from. It's certainly family, but I think it's multiple family members, um, certainly my grandparents, um, and, and my parents, um, it was always very important to them that I cared about what I was doing. They didn't really care. They didn't seem very concerned with what it was like after it was done. They wanted to know that I cared while I was doing it. Yeah. Um, and that I, and that I was proud of it when it was done. Um, and you know, there's, there's a, there's, there's actually, there's this really great book that I just finished reading. Um, that's written by, it's called like Stanley and me, Kubrick and me. It's, it's a, um, um, what's, what's the word memoir? Mm-hmm. It's a memoir of uh, this guy named Emilio D'Alessandro, who was Stanley Kubrick's assistant for 30 years. Right. Basically from the end of A Clockwork Orange, or from A Clockwork Orange to um, the end of his life. And there's a thing recounted in that book that that came from Kubrick and sort of succinctly puts all of this thing is that you know, Kubrick was sort of known infamously for his demanding nature, that, that he demanded a lot of the people that worked for him, but he also demanded a lot of himself. And um, there's a story that Emilio outlines in this that says he's talking to he's talking to Kubrick and asking, like, why are why are you? why are you working so hard on this? Why do you like, why is what you're asking of me necessary to do? Um, and Kubrick's response was Emilio, it's easy. You either care or you don't. 
Um, yeah. Wow. And it, and it's, it's, it's that, it's that simple. And that was his approach to everything. And I find a lot of, um, I identify with that, with that a great deal because while I, I don't think that it's, I think that it would be arrogant to put a sort of, uh, quality, um, like a qualitative play towards the stuff that I make. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not trying to necessarily make it good. I'm not trying to necessarily make it great. I'm certainly not trying to make it perfect. Um, but I am trying to make it with intention and that as, as, as awful as any of the actual reasons behind everything that ends up on the screen are, there's a reason for everything that's there. Um, I, I, I justify and, and almost need to, I mean, this would be a big (laughs) challenge that I have to overcome is that I I can't make a decision unless I have a reason for why I've made it. Um, because my end goal isn't necessarily a great film. My end goal is something that's truthful, something that's interesting and something that has intention behind it. And my intentions, especially in that early stuff, I think that we, like, I don't look at those films and think that they're bad. I see them as successes towards a wrong goal. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we just, we, we had an intention that was just naive and stupid, but we met that intention. It just ended up not being as interesting as we thought it would be. Right. Right. And and Uh so much of, so much of that, that flips in, in how you tell the story. Um, and, and tone and tone yeah. is one of the hardest things to master. Yeah, it's exactly So like, like in, in our, our first short, a new life, see, I've done it. See, I call it the first short cause we hide the other one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our first short, a new life. Um, the, we wanted basic as a 13 minute film and we wanted to basically make the film as real to life and as like boring and mundane a day as possible for as long as possible. And then, and then flip people on their head. Like that was the idea. Right. Um, that's a terrible idea for a movie. It's a terrible goal. There's like 10 minutes of just a boring movie, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like it's not, but it goal met was just a bad goal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that, 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 that idea of this thing of this advice that, that we, uh, that we give, which is, um, you know, and, you know, me and Nick have a, have a background in being executive producers and, and, and certainly, uh, today we're doing you know the brand and, and project yeah. consulting, but, but one of the questions I ask every filmmaker is why do you want to make this right. and is it worth making? Like, who right. are you trying to talk to? And, and if you can't answer that really well, then I hope you take that in, in the best way with the best energy possible and say, I can reach this goal, but is it worth reaching? Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then a second piece of advice uh, actually comes from my very dear friend, Nancy Van Reese, the the honorable Metro Councilwoman, Nancy Van Reese, wow. District 8. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, she, she told me this story from when she was a kid. Um, she had, she has, I don't know how many siblings she has a couple of brothers at least. And she's, um, out to the lake with her, with her family, her, her, her brothers and her dad. Um, and they're fishing 
all of her brothers are fishing, her dad's fishing, and she wants to fish. Um, she's the only girl. Um, the And her dad says, okay, he shows her how to do it, gives her a rod, gives her, you know, puts the line on it, shows her how to cast. She spends the next two hours just gleefully fishing, cast, reel it in, cast, reel it in, cast, reel it in. She's so happy, so excited, but all of her brothers are catching all these fish and she's not catching any of them. Right. Um, and her brother, she starts complaining. It's like, how come I can't catch anything? What are you doing wrong? And her brother finally comes over and looks at her line and her dad had just put a, a weight on the line. He hadn't put a hook on it. Uh, and so, so her advice is that, that she's, she's taken that story and she said, you can do everything that you want. Just make sure that when you're doing it, you have a hook on the line. Yeah. Wow. Like it's, it's an incredible sort of metaphor and probably, um, led to some very significant trust issues for her. <laughs> in her life. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really nice sort of, um, succinct way to think about uh, essentially like that, that, that idea. It's, it's even sort of an, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice parable for what we're talking about, right? Like it's a, the, the idea of you can have all the intention in the world, but if there's not a thing that's going to bring your goal to you, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, you just have to make sure there's a hook on the line. Yeah, you have to have some sort of uh, thing that appeals to the thing you're trying to catch. Exactly. Yeah, and my first fishing experience, just as a side note, could also be a metaphor. Uh, I was five years old. I was at a lake. I don't know if it's Percy Priest. It might have been, but I'm not sure. Um, as I was traumatized by the moment, and <laughs> I'm at the edge of a dock and I throw my line in, and almost immediately I get a bite, and it's heavy, and I'm five <laughs> years old, and I'm pulling it in, and I'm like, "Holy cow! I'm a natural," um, <laughs> and 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 like this is this is happening, and when I pull it up, it's just a it's just a Coke can filled with water and I'm like disappointed. So I take the Coke can in my hand and I'm like, dang. And, and as soon as I put it in my hand, a small snake jumped out of it. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yep. I threw it back in the water and you know, I don't, I don't know what you could compare that to, but it could just be sometimes when you think you've, you've gotten something and it came so easily, it's probably things that are too good to be true usually are. Maybe that's the metaphor. Yeah, right. This is, you know, you think you, th you think you're getting something good and great, and it turns up it's just a snake. Once exactly. I learned I've, it early. I've encountered the snakes, man. There you go. As have I. As have I. And um, yeah, that's that's great advice to take, and I, and I hope everyone takes heed uh, to, to what you just said there. Um, I'm curious though. You you've you've got a style about what you do and, and you've certainly been affected by your peers, but, but who, who actually, um, is there anybody you emulate? Uh, and, and is there anybody you look to and say, I want to, I want to be as successful or, or make art like that creative. And if so, like, who is it? And, and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that, that makes them stand apart? I mean, you know, certainly I, I derive, derive is the wrong word. I steal, um, very actively from 
um, in, you know, all of the history of classic cinema. And I have a massive Blu-ray collection that I look at as my film school because I never had film school. Um, major director's work have inspired me for the entirety of my life. It's actually, I mean, film was my first, even though I started in still photography, it was always film that I drew my image inspiration from. I've never been a fan of still photography, like as a, something that I consume, right? Mm-hmm. It's all, all the imagery that I access in my, in my sort of mental databases film. Um, and I mean, you know, it's all of the Bergman and Kubrick and De Palma and, um, Sidney Lumet, like, um, Hitchcock, all of these in, in, incredible classic filmmakers. It's, it's, it's their work inspired me from the earliest point for sure. And most, most specifically Kubrick, um, when I get into these sort of like existential, where did it come from conversations? He always comes up because, uh, I saw a clockwork orange at far too early an age to see a clockwork orange. Yeah, uh, probably. <laughs> and I don't know if there's ever an age where it's like, um, uh, necessarily a, a good idea. Right. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe a good, good, you know, a, a, a decent thing to watch actually. I mean, Kubrick went to his grave thinking that nobody should see it. He was very, uh, upset and affected by the violence that had been attributed to it. Um, right. Yeah. And, and he, he's, he sort of disowned it fairly soon after if he could have pulled it from all the shelves, he would have, I'm glad he didn't, but he would have. Um, but I saw that movie when I was sort of right around that same age, you know, 12, 13, maybe Mm -hmm. Um, that my mom, I I got my, uh, I got my hand on a, on a DVD of it. I don't know how that happened, but I got my hand on a DVD of it and watched it and it completely changed my perspective of what a movie could be. Right. As it's done for generations since it came out, no doubt. Uh, And it made me uh, voracious for any and all information regarding Stanley Kubrick. Um, I very soon after that got his uh, like box set, of DVDs that Warner brothers released. It's the white one with all the, all the movies in it. Yeah. Uh, and watched all of them on repeat for, for forever. And then started to learn good books about him and started to learn about his, you know, his life. And he started as a still photographer. He worked for, like you were saying, a much larger, uh, <laughs> company. He worked for, I mean, he worked for look magazine, but I worked for a newspaper, he sort of started in this kind of journalistic world and then transferred into filmmaking. And so there's a lot about his approach and his story that I really identify with. And it's interesting as you get more into his, the reality of how he worked instead of the mystique that surrounds it. Yes. And it's, it's very, very, um, sort of small and independent. I mean, apart from like Spartacus in 2001, you know, they're like a full metal jacket was like a $16 million picture. Like that's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money for what's on screen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
he he made films with very small crew, very cheaply for the films that were put out, and did essentially everything in his house. Um, and and I I I draw a lot of inspiration from him and his working processes for sure. Yeah, and that box set is something I need to uh, gift to myself for Christmas. Yeah. Well, it's so it's a, the, yeah, I mean, I would highly suggest get them, getting them on Blu-ray now There's a lot more transfers and, uh, the criterion collection is, has released a lot of his work, um, and really, really high quality transfers. So many of them in the that DVD set had garbage transfers, honestly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I love the pro tip. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. This D- DVDs, there's so many of these classic films, I mean, I saw I saw my first Bergman movie movie on a DVD, um, The Seventh Seal, and I mean, it was <laughs> you know it, it's like you you don't get it because it's not it's not an accurate it's not an accurate portrayal of it, and I'm sure that there's probably things coming along that are better than Blu-ray, but the idea that we can now go back to these movies and see something that's that approximates what it actually felt like when you saw it from a good print um is is really is really amazing and i think that that's whether whether it was intended or not like the access to that stuff i think is is just as important and spurring what is the new is this newfound like wave of independent filmmaking is all because we have this like library that we can be inspired from now yeah yeah. that previous generations didn't have very good access to. Yeah. And I, I know it's getting harder and harder to actually find classic movies unless you're on Amazon. And uh, I think John August and uh, one other person is like heading up uh, a, a crowdsourced Excel file for all the movies they couldn't find. And, and then, oh wow, f- yeah. Then from there, I need to find the details on that again, but uh, from there, they're yeah. going to request that these movies be made available in yeah, so there's, simpler there's, ways. Well, there's a lot of really great companies. So, I mean, Criterion obviously does a lot of great work, but there's another company called Twilight Time, which does these um, these little like 3,000 print limited releases of movies that are spectacular, amazing films that you'd never really cool. have yeah. heard of. So like Stanley Donan's Two for the Road, which is Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn. It's an incredibly important classic film by one of cinema's greatest directors. I mean, Stanley Donan is a master at the work that he does. And this is one of the few non-musical projects that he made. It's one of my favorite films and it hadn't been on Blu-ray. It was on this really trash transfer DVD from Warner brothers and twilight time was able to get the rights to, to release 3000 copies of it and did a new transfer for it. did all of the things. And so they're doing a lot of really great work to preserve these, um, these sort of smaller, like American Buffalo, which is a David Mamet movie with Dennis Hoffman and Dennis Franz, um, Dustin Hoffman and Dennis Franz. Um, you know, so like the, I, I think that the companies like that, they, they, for anyone listening, go buy Twilight Time <laughs> because I, I, I need them to continue to exist. Yeah. And, and if we don't buy them, then they won't. And, um, good luck trying to find and watch American, you know, 
Buffalo. Like, like so good too. like, like, like just right now, like you can't do it. So we need these companies to exist. Um, you know, earlier in, in our conversation, you mentioned that you did, you were, you were judging and part of, um, a screenwriting contest. Is that right? No, I film festival this year or, or Oh yeah. So, so they did a, um, it's called the actor's challenge. What they did was actor's challenge. Sorry. I I apologize. I misspoke. Um, so it was a very weird thing. Um, and I, I, I guess they're going to continue to do it. I don't know. Ted Crockett was, was heading it up he was a executive director and no longer is. Um, but they basically took submissions from all over the country, um, of actors auditions. They sent them to, to, I believe Regina Moore at more casting here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was some panel of judges, which I don't know who they were. Um, narrowed those submissions down to a top 15 actors and actresses. And they then split those 15 actors at random um, between myself, um, director Faith McQuinn, and uh, my friend and yours, Maki Dapp. And so we were then given a, a very inappropriate low, inappropriately low budget <laughs> to deliver a, a short film um, meant to only be five minutes. Ours was eight, um, including these five actors that we had just been handed. Uh, gotcha. Um, and so, and then there was some sort of, you know, they had some, there was some aspect to it of competition between the, the three films that nobody involved really understands. Um, <laughs> not that criteria worked or happened, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, so that was the challenge. It was a very weird thing to be given actors that you don't know that you've never, like you didn't have any, 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 none of the part of the process of them getting to you, what were you were a part of it all? Like it's, it's, it's very strange. Um, cause you just sort of have to make it work. Right. Um, and you have no context or anything like, like that. Yeah. And I, I am curious, you know, you're working with these five people and, um, you know, certainly, um, um, working together with, with other filmmakers and, and actors and, and this process you talked about of like learning to work mm-hmm. with talent and that being a challenge for you early. Um, you, you're just in touch with so many different people in, in different areas of the, of the industry and of the work. Um, are, are there creative and business mistakes you see people making? And, and if so, you know, what would you say are the top ones? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like I would say, hmm, I would, I would, I would be careful to call things that newcomers are doing mistakes. I mean, I've always sort of had, um, a, a troubled relationship with advice in general. Um, I mean, so this, this, this podcast and even being a part of it is sort of strange 
for me. Right. Uh, just, just because I, I, I honestly think in a cynicism is a thing that I fight significantly. I, my Trey, Trey tells me all the time. It's, it's very weird that I can be simultaneously more cynical than he is while also being significantly more hopeful than he is. He calls me a hopeful cynic mm-hmm. all the time, you know, but like there's so, there's so much advice that people give that isn't for the people that they're giving advice to. It's, 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 it has this sort of color to it. That's meant to prop up themselves. Um, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it, but it's, it's, it's a thing that I respond very negatively to when I see it. Um, And, and especially when I hear it, I try to be really careful not to do it. And so the, the sort of the usual, like, very much sort of tongue in cheek, half joking advice that I uh, give to anybody the newcomers is to not listen to anybody's advice, including mine. Yeah. Um, just do, 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 there isn't a right way to do it. Like, so especially like it, if I, if I start, if I think about people doing things uh, in a way that I feel like is necessarily wrong, it's usually not somebody that's new to the business. It's usually somebody who's very much a veteran and more experienced than I am. Um, I would push back against trying to say anything that would lead lead someone to think that they're doing a wrong thing. Um, the, I mean, the the big, I guess the big piece of vi- advice would be just sort of, it'd be less career advice and more life advice. I think that it's important to recognize the difference between like joy and happiness. Like joy is kind of a fleeting thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like, so that, like, you know, you were talking about, we've, we've had shorts that have won awards. Um, we, we had our short daddy's little girl that won scream fest in Los Angeles, um, was the best narrative short, won the grand jury prize. We got this super sick gold skull trophy. Mm-hmm. Getting that trophy was the reason that we submitted to scream fest. Like I wanted it so bad, but you don't think that that's a thing that can happen. And when it happens, there's there's very easily this thought that you can then leverage that like specifically and immediately into sort of the rest of all your hopes and dreams. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen. Like that's that's not how the that's not how the world works. And the joy that you felt for that is fleeting. And so if you're like that's a thing that people have to kind of learn for themselves that. And, and would you say that, I mean, I, I know that um, you said that, that there, there really aren't mistakes, but, but in terms of the life advice you're giving, uh, you know, how does that sort of turn into uh, something that's not working for a filmmaker, you know, if they don't heed that advice? Is that a creative mistake, uh, you'd say? No, no, I wouldn't say so. I mean, it's a... You know, it's just like you're you finding out where like the the kind of difference between 
if you recognize that moment as a joyful time, then you can kind of enjoy the season. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if you, but if you pin your worth on it, that's, it's going to fall, it's going to fall away. Um, but, but, but it's also that I don't think that that's not a thing that people can know because I said it right. That's, that's where the sort of disconnect in, in my brain lives. Right. I right. think you have to, you have to figure it out. You have to figure that out on your own. Um, you know, and it's, it's just, it's always been so amazing to me how like there's the, so th- this is the sort of positive spin on it. Like it's, the the thing that I love about film and filmmaking and movies much more than any other art form is how human it is. Mm-hmm. Like there's humanity in every aspect to it. There's nothing gets on the screen without the careful human concern of some person, right? Like Mm -hmm. whatever it is that that actor has on happens to be a, through a very careful thought out concern by a wardrobe consultant in collaboration with a director looking towards the, like that was a, that's humanity that you're seeing. Right. Yes. And like, there's, there's not a, you can't go into a room, turn a machine on, and then come back to that room an hour later and have a movie. You need people. And the thing that surprised me the most over the course of time that I've been doing it is how much at every level, or every level that I've at least been able to get to and see, it's just it's just people like, it's just the, that person that you think you think that there's like this big grand spot somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where all of the magic happens and it's not magic. It's, it's, it's construction. It's just people in a room working the best they, that they can with a thing that they don't really know how to do because there's not really necessarily a way to do it. Right. And I find great joy and comfort in that idea that like you can go and like the head of Warner brothers is just a person. Right. Yep. It's not like a golden God, right? Like it's, it's a, it's a person that just gets up every morning and goes to work and makes decisions. And you know, they just happen to affect more people than the decisions that you make, but they're not any less worried about it. They're not any less, um, human than you are. And I think that that's fairly unique to our industry and that the, the barriers that exist are false barriers, right? They're the curtain in the wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not, it's not this place that you can't get to just you and your, 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 you know, three, 10 scarecrow and lion friends. And and the consult that Nick and I, typically given this is, and and I do think they're, I think advice is the stock on advice is, you know, extremely low right now, right? Right. Because it's so ubiquitous. Like 
everybody's giving it and everybody has some cliche to provide you. Right. And we try to create a delineation between advice, which might help your spirits, might raise your spirits, right. and consult, which is know precisely what to do. I always relate it back to my mother and my father. If I had a problem, I'd go to my mom and she would say, well, just pray on it, honey. And that's not something that's going to help me necessarily, although I might try it. And if I went to my dad, he would give me a detailed uh, path forward that would help me immediately. And that's kind of the difference between the two. But I'll push back on some of what you said with the next question, because um, I am curious how you would teach someone who wanted to be a filmmaker. uh, How would you teach them to be a a competent filmmaker if you had like one month to do that? What would be the three things you would teach, knowing that you had to teach them some sort of craft um, uh, with the backdrop, knowing that, that, you know, there's a million ways to do the same thing? Um, I mean, it would be focused, I think, and entirely on, on care. I mean, you know, what's defining, defining what the story is. Like, I, I, I think that you should, I think that you should lean into, your, your care and your concern and your intention. Um, and that if you have, if you have trouble coming to what that is, then I, I think that, you know, like a trick, a trick that Trey and I use when we're writing. And I mean, honestly, when we're doing anything, I'm, I'm very much love, uh, rules, especially arbitrary rules. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the, uh, I, th- I think creativity thrives with limitation as a um, as a thing. Like you can't you can't you can't have the the thing that I always say is, and I think I'm sure somebody super way uh, smarter than I am said it, and I'm just stealing it. But you know, a sandbox needs walls, right? That uh, yeah. you're you can't you can't create a thing with infinite possibilities, and so. Because in the medium that we are, especially in the age that we live in, the possibilities uh, are actually endless. Um, and so it, a trick to get around that that train I use is we create these terrible, awful limiting rules for ourselves for a specific story. And then we use those rules to sort of inform an inherent logic within what we're making. Um, so in the time you know, sort of, so to get, uh, back a little bit to Caroline, Caroline Knight, who, uh, directed still Sophie, um, came to me to produce it because she used to assist me in my commercial work. Hmm. She was in high school, got to college, got some grant money, got this opportunity to make a documentary about our friend Sophie and, uh, came to me to help her put that together. Um, and there was a lot of what the the hypothetical situation that you're describing was that production. Mm. I mean, I, I essentially she had made a short film before, but certainly not one that involved any sort of a budget and collaborating with as many people as that she needed to collaborate with. And so what I did was take that opportunity to use that money to make her work with other people. Gotcha. 
Um, so instead of her shooting it and uh, editing it herself, um, I shot it and I hired an editor, which I think it's important to be able to learn how to vocalize what you want. Um, and so I used, I basically used that budget to give her the opportunity to have to vocalize what she is after instead of just doing it herself. Like she'd already had that thing. So that's one of the first things you would teach is just learn to ask for what you want. Yeah. Yeah. And what your well, and more, and more specifically what your intention is for the project. Well, yeah. I mean, if you don't know what you want, you can't ask for it. So that's, there's two steps to it. Figure out what you want and then ask for it. Um, because if, yeah, I mean, if you don't, you know, if you don't know what you want, then you, you, you can, it's, it's, it's unworkable. Like if you know what you're after, then you can just keep sort of plodding along and working until you find it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have any idea what you want, then you, what, there's not, there's no path to making the thing. You never know when you're done. Right. Yeah. Very, very good point. And, and so anything for that second and third thing you might teach anything craft wise, is it, is it more along the line of nuance like the, like the previous? Um, I mean, I think that like, I, I, you know, it's weird. And this, this, this sort of gets into that, that cynical idea that I have about advice. I mean, the bulk, the bulk of what I would do is specific to my situation. And the advice that I would give is just, uh, not a, not a, not a description about what needs to be done, but more of a description of how I do it. Right. Right. Yeah. So that, that, and that's what we're aiming for here. So not, yeah. not necessarily advice you'd give them, but what would you teach them? Right. So putting on a teacher hat there. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, I think that it's important to understand. Um, I, I, I take great, uh, comfort in the knowledge that I have about the different hats on set. So in like, I have been the editor in the room with not enough footage. I have been the DP on the set working for a director that's doing things I don't trust. I have been the producer that's looking at, at this director and thinking, what, what, what is this person doing? Mm -hmm. We're never going to be able to finish this. I'm up against a deadline. I have people breathing down my neck. Right. I've been, been the sound guy. I've done hair and makeup. I've done the craft services when I don't get everybody's lunch order on time and it's due in an hour. Like because of doing all of these different hats and having an awareness of like, you know, what, what it means when you ask for something. So if I turn to Scott Phelps, the gaffer that I love to work with, if I turn to Scott and ask him for a light off the truck, I know what he has to do to get that. Right. right. And I think that the more of that, that you can sort of put in your brain as somebody in a leadership role in anything film included, but, but even apart from that, having an awareness of the effect of the thing that you've asked for is going to color how you ask for it. And I think that that's super important because again, we're in an industry that's entirely humanity. And so everybody needs to be comfortable. Everybody needs to be a part of it. Everybody needs to be 
there and engaged and own their contribution in in a way that's that fulfills whatever need that they came to it with. And I'm, I'm certainly against any sort of idea of, you know, the film is the most important thing or the story is the most important thing or anything for the shot. No, that's what gets slates for Sarah to happen. Like, the people are important. No, I'm sorry, we can't do that shot where we plunge the actress into a, a lake when it's, you know, 40 degrees outside. Mm-hmm. We yeah. can't do that. That's not a shot we're going to do. Figure another thing out. We can't do that one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like there's, there's that sort of thing that I – it's understanding the impact of the things that you're asking for would be – a major component of my three, uh, three month uh, <laughs> or, or your, or your three things in one month kind of teaching. Uh, right. yeah, no, that, I think that's never really been articulated in that way. So thank you for that. That was excellent. And, um, anything else before we, before I let you off the hook on this one, is there anything else you would teach if you had one month? Um, yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, knowing, I, I think that, it would it, it would be just a reiteration of of figure figure out some method and everybody's going to need their own way to be able to come to a conclusion about what you're after because there's nothing that anybody hates more from a crew level and from an individual worker level that's looking to a director to know something there's nothing more frustrating than not knowing there's especially nothing more frustrating than saying i don't know i need to see it mm-hmm. you know like I, I, I get so frustrated with um, I, I, I compare I compare film fairly often in a metaphorical sense to to magic um, that you know this I grew up really loving magic um, especially like skeptical skeptical magicians like Penn and Teller. Um, I, I really responded well to it and, and spent a fair amount of my sort of, I'm a photographer and maybe I'm a singer and maybe I'm a magician. <laughs> like high school, I, I did a lot of that sort of learning double lifts and I had a good sponge ball routine that my grandmother loved. And, <laughs> you know, like I, I did that for a little while, but it, it's what's, what you learn as you start to get into it is that the entirety of it, where, where they align is that they're both the illusion of no preparation. So you have, if, if you have a magician that walks up to you on the street and holds you and, and hands you a sponge ball and then does a little routine. And then suddenly you have a handful of 45 sponge balls that fall all over the place. Mm-hmm. The trick that he's done to the done for you is impressed you in a way where you never think that he's been walking around with 45 sponge balls in his pocket all day long. <laughs> that like when he leaves the house in the morning, he loads his pockets with magic mm. and has spent a lifetime crafting the very specific nuanced movements that give you the illusion that what he's doing is extemporaneous. And I, I think that film is that is that same way. Um, and so, I mean, that third thing that I would in part would be preparation most important of which is knowing what you want and being able to decide that when somebody comes and asks you a question that you've come up with whatever 
amount of specific magic things in your pockets that allow you to say <laughs> yes or no and not need to see 50 iterations before I can choose like we're all doing the same thing we're all doing the same sort of hustle let's talk to each other like we know the tricks that you're using so we can come to a conclusion right like I don't want to waste all of this time in that regard man that that is uh that's beautifully put man and um I, I think I think you did answer it so differently uh, than, than most everyone else, but it's it, it was such a valuable way to uh, to approach it and um, uh, very poetic, I have to say as well. Um, Good. Well, I, I hope if if I sound like an asshole, I know that I'm not, or maybe that I am. Uh, <laughs> I don't. There's a, there's I don't a little know. bit of asshole in, in everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're right. Everybody's got at least one. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's okay to have an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I, need it. I use it three or four times daily if it's regular. Um, exactly. No, no, I, I don't think no. you came off like that at all. I just think I okay, just think good. it's going to be so valuable, you know, for our listeners to sort of hear that perspective, and and for it to be a, a unique one at that. And um, guy, I, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time uh, out to do this and to be a part of a part of this podcast. And I, and I hope for everyone there. Yeah. Listening. I hope for you, it, it feels meaningful, um, as an experience and and as time used and, and, and time used listening, uh, as well. So, so Chad, tell everybody where, where they can find you on uh, social media. Um, so social media, it's basically Chad McLarnon, C H A D M C C L A R N O N on everything. All one word. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. That's amazing. Um, com is my sort of personal work site. Bestpartproductions.com is the production company. Best Part Productions also has social media stuff, but they're like Best Part Pro or Best, you know, whatever. It's some different derivation of it, but the website gets everybody there. Um, that's great. And, and, uh, and where can everybody see the short you had in uh, this um, latest festival run? Um, well, and so give us the name of it one more time. So the latest festival run was still Sophie, and we are actually in still in negotiations with um, a company to distribute that. I'm, um, what? So that's not necessarily available uh, worldwide yet. I'm. I'm not a guy that just puts things on YouTube, so right. That, but that, that's <laughs> um, the documentary feature. But the short that you had at Nashville and and you and you yeah. So and, with and, oh, so Daddy's Little Girl is available on uh, iTunes, um, Google Play, Verizon FiOS, um, which is surprising. People are watching it on Verizon FiOS. We just got our. Um, we just, we just got our statement from the distributor the other day and it made another, you know, 200 bucks. The bulk of which is just people watch it on Verizon files. I don't know. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think that there's a a direct TV on demand. I think it's there too, but that's called daddy's little girl. Um, and you know, then I have, I mean, my, my Vimeo page has a lot of, and and the bestpartproductions.com has a lot of like music video work that we've done and, and commercials and things like that to watch. And so people, if they go to Vimeo, they can see everything you've done? 
Uh, now they can see at least trailers for the bulk of everything we've done. Yeah, and then yeah, all of the all of the music video stuff that we've done, I think, is on is on Vimeo. Perfect. Well, people, you know what to go do. Go find Chad. Go show him some love. Support his work, and he has so much great work left to left to come and, and put out in the world. So, Chad, thanks again for for the time, and uh, I hope Absolutely. I can see you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Man, anytime, anytime, my man. Yeah. Talk to Sweet. you soon. Appreciate you. Be good. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects, social media, and transcripts of this interview, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash podcast. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.